0: If you have, you're going to need your pew Bible this morning because we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's page 290 in those blue Bibles if you didn't bring a Bible. But 2 Samuel 11 is page 290 in the blue Bible if you want to follow along. And this is the context of Psalm 51. And the context is David's sin with Bathsheba. And this is this is trouble. Nobody sets out to like, blow up their life nobody has it in their five-year goals or 10-year goals like commit adultery believer marry an unbeliever I think that's going to be one of my five-year goals but what happens is temptation happens and I think for people with end up marrying an unbeliever it's God hasn't provided anybody else to date and somebody's showing interest in me And with adultery, I think a lot of times it starts with an emotional attachment, a friendship where people begin to share with one another that, you know, my spouse doesn't do this, they're not good at this. And the other one says, oh man, and they start to share their problems and there's an emotional bond that builds slowly, slowly and over time, train wreck, derailment, crash, burn, flames And I happen to be on a committee right now, I'm actually supposed to bring a report Tuesday to the presbytery of one of the pastors in our presbytery that began to counsel a lady in his church and that counseling led to an affair, an adulterous relationship. He subsequently has divorced his wife and has married this lady and now has been deposed from the ministry and he's no longer now a member of the PCA. This is a pastor of one of the biggest churches in our presbytery, prominent, and which what Tim Keller calls majestic self-pity that often descends on leaders, that nobody else knows how hard my life is and how, much, how hard it is to be in this position of leadership, and the rules need to just bend a little bit for me. And poor David, isn't that what happened? So let's look at this and be sober by it. Let's walk through the text. It says, in the spring of the year, this is 2 Samuel 11, in the spring of the year, and they didn't typically do war in the winter, it was cold. (laughs) And it was hard to get all the reinforcements and food and shelter, I guess. So in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. That should be our first, uh uh-oh, not good and his servants, and all Israel. Everybody that's a somebody is at war. And they, notice the pronoun, doesn't include David here, they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So David's sins of commission begin with sins of omission. He wasn't where he should have been on duty, and before long, He's where he shouldn't have been, and now he finds himself in sin, and this is kind of our first clues to the text, that laziness often leads to lust, and everybody else is on duty, but David remained at Jerusalem. This isn't starting well. Verse two even drops a bigger bomb when it starts with, it happened. You're like, oh man, here we go. It happened, late one afternoon, <clears throat> when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David is, is um, on vacation. He is experiencing a serious retreat, so much so that it's late one afternoon, and he's just now getting up from the couch. Maybe he had a nap. And twice it says that he... The word roof. So David's residence is the highest point in the city and his abode people think was 50 feet higher than everybody else's. So he has the look of the whole uh, city and the idea is he's walking on the roof pacing back and forth. He sees this woman bathing and he sees that this woman is very beautiful and instead of turning or fleeing, He's enticed and lust is conceived in his heart. The glance becomes a gaze. The gaze will become gluttony and it's going to lead to great guilt and a horrific ungodliness. And so lust is conceived. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now David had 37 of his inner mighty men. These were his best warriors. And Uriah the Hittite is one of them. And so his officials are holding up to him the caution flag. They're holding up the big yellow caution flag. And when you're on caution, you need to take caution. But David blows right through the warnings as though it was a checkered flag. And so David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The text just says the messengers took her. Doesn't say it was by force, but it may have been. Doesn't say whether it was by lie or deceit. But the writer does tell us that she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's translation for you to know and be completely clued in that she's not pregnant before she encounters David. Take note. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant, next verse. Now she is pregnant and it's clear that it's from David. So David moves from faithlessness to now he's gonna move to deceitfulness because now he's gonna have to cover this up. And so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. The present was probably the idea to give him a sense of entitlement, a sense of privilege, a sense of honor, a sense of majestic self-pity. You deserve a little time of R&R. You deserve to be with your wife. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, so now the inner circle is all in on David's plan. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, and this is a fascinating comment. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So here is Uriah the Hittite appealing to what? The Ark, Israel, and Judah. (laughs) He's appealing to the covenant faithfulness to the God of Israel and to you, David, how can, to you, my Lord, how could I not do such a, how could I do such a thing, even though it is my, my right? He would not sleep with his wife because he sees that he has a higher calling of loyalty and being covenant faithful and out of, out of solidarity to his, to his troops that he knows when he comes back and he comes back to the field, the guys will come along and say, man, it must have been really nice to be with your wife and he'd be able to say to them, guys, For your sakes, I didn't do it, out of solidarity. He wants to be a true warrior. And can you imagine what David is thinking? I mean, here David is looking at the man who he's taken his wife, has completely trashed God's covenant and faithfulness to him. All the things that Uriah stands for, David has not. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today, Also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. Meanwhile, I've got to come up with another plan. That's probably what he's thinking. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David is now on to cover up plan number two, Get him drunk, loosen up his morals, loosen up his resolve. Certainly once he gets feeling good, he'll forget all about this covenant faithfulness. And David had hoped that Uriah would be a man like himself. But no, Uriah is a man of integrity, unlike David. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So Uriah is going to be carrying his death certificate back to his general. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. Uriah is gonna carry this death sentence that he doesn't read. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Yerubbosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall? so that he died at Thebes. Why did you go soon near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him. Now the commentators, some of the commentators think that the intrusion of this story, this is a long letter that, that Joab sends back and he includes the story from Judges about the woman throwing down a millstone on Abimelech is Joab's veiled way of communicating back to David that I know there's a woman involved. And and probably everybody knew that Uriah's wife was hot stuff, but you got what you wanted, David, and and Uriah the Hittite's dead. But Joab's letting him know in this veiled communication, I know what's going on here. And David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David's encouraging himself, pacifying his own conscience as he seemingly got away with murder. But jumping in, in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. When the morning was was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It seems as though David had hatched the plan that had finally worked. And yet we're told it didn't escape the Lord's notice. And so we've already read the rebuke of 2 Samuel chapter 12 and with the confession of sin and now if you look over to Psalm 51 we have a psalm that is inspired this is David's repentance his verses 1 to 9 are his penitence penitence is this idea of of sorrow for sin his contrition and 1 to 9 are different ways that he is expressing his penitent heart but verses 10 to 19 is all about repentance and what does repentance look like and so let's walk through this psalm together so David after he says I have sinned against the Lord he writes this psalm have mercy on me O God According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's just stop there for a second. David's sin is personal. Count those personal pronouns in just the first two verses. There's six of them and it's throughout the whole psalm. is so personal. David is owning up to his sin. He is, it doesn't make excuses. And he uses all three words for sin. There's three different words. And they're, they're, the words in English are transgressions, iniquity, and sin. It each means something different. And David recognized all three are involved. And so he starts off with saying, blot out my transgression. The idea of transgression is this is a rebellious spirit. There is a rebellion involved. I know that I was to stop and I went right through it. This is the idea of presumptuous sin. This is a willful, stubborn, determined sin. The law was clear and David rebelled. That's the idea of transgression. It's when you, you know what you should be doing and you don't do it and you go against that. And so that is the idea of, of transgression. He doesn't say, I was, I was thinking, it was a mistake, it was just a little small thing. No, no, the problem was he was thinking. And it, that was the problem. He knew what he was doing. And so then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And this idea of iniquity is a different idea that, that the Hebrews getting at with sin. And the idea here is that it's a heart problem. It's an inward problem, and and they always say the heart of the problem is the heart of the problem. You know, it was the heart. The heart is full of iniquity, and the idea is that it's through and through, that it's in us. We are sinful in all of our, you know, we call this total depravity. But it's the idea that the heart is stained and polluted is the idea. And so he's asking to be washed from his iniquity. And then he's also asking to be cleansed from my sin. And that's probably more the term that we're familiar with when we talk about missing the mark and the idea of of a target and God's law is the standard. And when you miss the target, that's the idea of sin. And David is confessing all three that there's a heart problem, a rebellious spirit, a polluted heart, and a missing of the mark. And John Bunyan has this classic quote about sin where he says this. He says, Let's see if we pull that up. He says, Sin, I'm sorry, I'm jumping. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Let me say that one more time. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. And David recognizes, he sees the depths of his sin. Now let's go back to the text, picking up at verse three. Now he says, I know my transgressions, My sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David sees his sin as deeper still. It's ever before him. It's perpetual. It's ever present. It's pursuing him. It's like Lady Macbeth that cries out that all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. It's this idea that this guilt is pervasive and and David sees that against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And even though Uriah is now missing, he sees that his deeper sin is first and foremost an affront to God. Sin is a monster. Sin is this idea that, that we would kill God if we got the chance. And when we did get the chance at the cross, we did. It's an attack against him. And so David acknowledges who his sin is really rebellion against. And then he, David goes deeper still and he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And he's not blaming his mother. He's not blaming his his. his society or his roots or where he's grown up he's he's wrestling with this problem is so deep I was born in this but he's not using that as an excuse he's saying this is the problem he's in agony because he knows God's delights in truth and truth in the inner being and his inner being is full of iniquity and misses the mark altogether and he's undone and he has this dark moment here of Of self-discovery. He's saying this sin is no accident. It's no mere stumble. It's the overflow of the heart. Jesus said in, in Matthew 15, this sobering passage where Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now, what's so shocking about Matthew 15, 19 is that Jesus lays out the second table of the law. Have you ever thought about that? Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder. That's the sixth commandment. Adultery, sexual immorality. Next, that's the seventh commandment. Theft, that's the eighth commandment. False witness, slander, that's the ninth commandment. And Jesus says, this is what makes a man unclean, that out of his heart, we are natural, perpetual breakers of God's law. And we will just trash his commandments. We will harbor evil thoughts, harbor bitterness. We will hate people in our hearts. We will conceive lust and look at other people in ways that Jesus says we've already committed adultery in our hearts and that we will steal and then we will lie and slander That's what defiles a person and and David gets it and David sees that his sin is perverse. He knows what God desires and yet he knows he's twisted and corrupted, nowhere near God's standard of perfection. And so he cries out to God, verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Now hyssop is what was used in ceremonial cleansing but, but it was the ceremonial cleansing and particularly with the issue of leprosy and if one was leprous, the cleansing ceremony involved hyssop. And hyssop is this herb with a straight stalk and a bushy head, and apparently it looked a lot like broccoli, and it would be dipped in the blood of the sacrifice and then sprinkled seven times on the person who was defiled. This is Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. And so the word translated purge might be better rendered de me as you're being cleansed with this hyssop. And what, what David is feeling is that he's a spiritual leper, And he's asking to be cleansed with hyssop. Now what's interesting is connecting the dots to the New Testament. That the blood that was sprinkled and cleanses us is not the blood of bulls and goats. Sprinkled from the hyssop as mentioned in Hebrews 9. But in John 19.29 we're told that at Jesus' death he received the sour wine from a hyssop branch. Reminding us of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that fulfills the Old Testament ceremonial cleansing the blood that once for all forgives us of our sin. And so David is crying out for forgiveness and he wants to praise the Lord again. He's, he's gone as joy, gone as gladness. If you think sin makes you happy and sin's gonna like fulfill you and that something is better than what God has said, when you read Psalm 32 and you read Psalm 38 and you should read those Psalms and Psalm 51 they're they're talking about this physical agony, physical symptoms of sins. I mean, here David is referring to his bones are broken and his joy is gone and he's crying out for God to restore that. He wants to praise him again, but sin is the problem. Sin does these terrible things to us. It's like worse than an opioid. It makes you dull of hearing, dull to even hear the word of God makes us lazy and sluggish, as Hebrews describes. It's like this drug that that makes you just wanna just fall asleep during the message because ah, I got better and more important things and we're being deceived. But here we see in in the switch of this passage from 10 to 19, now we're gonna see what a repentant heart truly looks like. We know that worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to life. And David is a picture for us of what repentance is all about. And we should pray as we're learning how to pray through the psalms. This is what people have prayed for thousands of years when they've repented, as they've prayed Psalm 51, 10 to 19. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now the word repentance is never mentioned. And yet every phrase is about repentance. He desires a clean heart but he wants more than that. He wants a right spirit. He wants God, he wants God's presence. He wants to be restored with the the joy of your salvation. God, he knows God's the only one who saves and he wants to have that joy again and he wants uphold me with a willing spirit. The idea is keep me from stumbling into sin. And more than that, Lord, I want to teach transgressors your ways. May they learn from my mistake. May they not do what I have done. May even my confession here lead sinners to you, Lord. That's what David is getting at. He knows he's a leader and a spiritual leader, and his fall was massive. But he also knows that his restoration can be an instrument used by the Lord to instruct others on how the godly return to God, and they bring others with them. They own up to their sin. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. David struggled before this incident with Bathsheba. At various points in his life, he struggles with abuse of power. And you can think of him plundering villages and coming back and lying to the king when he was, and doing that for a while. And then there was the time where he was gonna just take out Nabal and everybody, man, strap on your sword. And if if Abigail hadn't met him halfway up the hill, he was coming down to clean out the whole crew. Abuse of power. But from this point on in his life, David doesn't struggle with abuse of power anymore. He's humbled. He's so humble, there's times where he he lacks courage now and decisiveness, and his house is gonna be a mess, but one thing you don't see in David's life from 2 Samuel 12 on is you don't see abuse of power anymore. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh, he's been humbled, and he's asking me, he's asking God to deliver him from blood guiltiness. Don't let me abuse my power. Don't let me do this again. Deliver me from that. Forgive me, but don't let me do it again. And he desires to have his lips open so that he could praise the Lord again. You know who makes the best singers in church? The best singers are those who have experienced great pardon. Great sinners pardon make great sinners. They make great worshipers because they know how good God is. And then David goes on, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What in the world does that mean? It almost seems like, do you you want the offering or you don't want it? You do want it. What is David getting at here? David knows that God delights in obedience more than sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. What the Lord is wanting is a change of heart, not just spilling of blood and throwing these sacrifices out on these animals, but that a heart that's engaged and knows that this spilling of blood is because of them and they're truly contrite in heart. Otherwise, it's the same as when Isaiah and Jesus says about the people of God, that these people honor me with their lips. They go through the motions, but their heart is far from me. God wants the lips and the heart. And so David wants Zion and Jerusalem fortified and built up, and he wants God to be honored with these sacrifices of blood with an engaged heart. You see, what David wants is for God to be honored. This is what repentance looks like. Is Now it's, your kingdom come, your name be hallowed, your will be done. That's what David is desiring here. And so now in conclusion, just a couple quick things. What can we learn from this? It's a lot. But first of all, we learn from David's sin, as the Bible says in other places, if you think you are standing firm, be careful lest you should fall I remember my first one of my first premarital counseling with Kim and I we were sitting there and I actually told the minister some of you heard this funny story but I told him that we didn't need this he was looking at conflict resolution how to deal with conflict and marriage and he had these glasses that he kind of had down here and he's reading Ephesians 4 and I he got done I just told him Randy, I know this is great for everybody else, but, but we don't need this. And he looked at me, and he went, no, no, you need this. I've never had anybody with, that's ever, that I've ever premarital counsel had the audacity to do what I did. I was that arrogant. Kim and I, we never argued when we were dating. I was a fool okay <laughs> be careful if you're standing firm. if you think this morning this could never be me no no you need this the heart is not only capable it can conceive quickly guard yourselves be on duty and David is described as the man after God's own heart and yet when he became lazy, when he wasn't doing his duty, he didn't heed the warnings. And soon, it's like the flood, the Johnstown flood. All of a sudden, bam! next thing you know, water is coming down this mountain at 40 miles an hour and 60 feet high. And the people don't even know what's coming downstream. They didn't heed the guy had been on horseback and, and marched into town twice on horse and said, the dam is going to break. The dam is going to break. But no, the people down, downstream, well, we're, we're fine. Three, over 3.8, billions of gallons, okay? Billions of gallons are coming downstream and the people just are oblivious. Are you hatching sin in your heart? playing around when you're duty and you're playing around with your technology on your cell phone and that technology can do a lot of good but it can do a lot of bad and if we're not doing our duty and we start letting our hearts go astray and we're not satisfied by the Lord it's real easy to just start next thing you know you're doing something you shouldn't be doing but you start hatching this and you start conceiving it and inevitably it leads to death and bam So take heed. We need to learn from David. This is meant to be a sad time for Israel. Israel wanted a a king, and they get their king, and they they finally get the man that's after God's own heart. And, And yet what happens to David and to Solomon, both of them? I mean, you read 1 Kings chapter 10, and you think you're in heaven. I mean, Solomon's kingdom, they, man, the half has not been told. It takes the queen of Sheba's breath away. All your servants are dressed so nicely. I mean, it, it is paradise. And then you read First Kings 11. What in the world happened to Solomon? Women. He loved foreign women, and they stole away his heart. Same with David here. So let's learn from that. Jonathan Edwards says this, sin is naturally exceedingly dear to us. To part with it is compared to plucking out our right eyes. Men may refrain from wanted ways of sin for a little while, may deny their lust in a partial degree with less difficulty, but it is heart-rending work finally to part with all sin and to give our dearest lust a bill of divorce, utterly to send them away, But this we must do if we would follow those who are truly turning to God. Yea, we must not only forsake sin, but must in a sense forsake all the world. Any of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we have to take sin seriously. Secondly, this psalm shows us what to do with sin. We all fall into sin. We would all love to say, man, I am am Superman. I am the one. No, none of us. But what we see here is humble contrition, confession, faith, repentance. We see all of these beautiful broken-heartedness. There's, there's a beauty in it that is just a brokenness that pours itself out before God in this psalm. And we should use this, uh, this psalm to help us in understanding the depths of our sin but also how to confess our sin and how to repent of sin. But then this also begs the question, how did this really work for David? Jesus doesn't come till much, much later. How is David actually forgiven? But Romans three tells us that God in his forbearance had passed over former sins like David's, but that God is just and the justifier so that the sins that were committed prior to Christ's death were passed over and were punished by Christ on the cross. And so now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how are we saved? Here's the answer. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, through the blood of Jesus buying us back by his blood, whom God put forward as a propitiation, one who would take the wrath of God for us by his blood, and that's to be received by faith. And maybe you need to receive that this morning by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in punishing sin and the justifier to declare sinners righteous to the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' blood is the only detergent that can wash away sin. It's not counseling. It's not medication. It's not your exercising. It's not your pummeling your body. It's not through asceticism. It's not through all the things that you think are going to worldly ways to do it. The Bible just says this. You who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, all our trespasses, how by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus dealt with sin on a cross. And the only way for us to deal with sin is to put them on the cross by faith and to receive his righteousness and his forgiveness. Come to him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross, it is our only hope. We thank you that righteousness and peace, your psalms say, have kissed, they have met at the cross, that you have dealt with sin and loved sinners. Lord, that is where we showed our hatred towards you, and yet that is where you showed your love to us. You showed us what sin deserves, and you showed us what pardon looks like. Help us to take in the cross afresh and to believe that you have washed us in your blood and made us clean, clean consciences, clean our consciences now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.